Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everything comes back to this idea of uh, homeostasis or balance. And I think it's very much the same with, within medicine and the same within uh, nutritional medicine and lifestyle medicine as well. There is such a thing as doing too much exercise. There is such a thing as having too many greens in your diet. If you look at any extreme, even water, there is such thing as having too much water. We do sometimes veer to the extremes of diet and everything. Hello and welcome to the Not Perfect Podcast, a show that explores the mind, soul, science and health as we speak with world-leading experts each week. I'm your host, Poppy Jamie, a best-selling author, entrepreneur, and happiness researcher. Life is not straightforward, so join me as we navigate being human together and become what I like to call flexible thinkers. I believe that curiosity and education is the route for more happiness, love, connectedness, and the doorway to unlocking your unlimited potential. I hope you join me on the journey. I am so excited to have Dr. Rupi Orjula, also known as the Doctor's Kitchen, on my podcast today. You may have seen him on TV, brightening up our screens or online. He is not only my favorite doctor because I'm obsessed with his books, Instagram and podcast. He is also a general practitioner for the UK NHS, working in emergency medicine. Dr. Rupi is a daily inspiration and uses his media platform to educate everybody about the beauty of food and the medicinal effects of eating well. He's a Sunday Times bestselling author and his three books, The Doctor's Kitchen, Eat to Beat Illness and Doctor's Kitchen 321 are all packed full of information. Furthermore, Dr. Rupi is the founder of The Doctor's Kitchen app. It's a completely stunning platform full of tips and guidance you need to live your healthiest life no matter what you might be facing health-wise. What is a favorite quote you like to return to often and why? This quote I've actually been thinking of quite a bit recently. It's been something that I think has helped me throughout this social media journey where you're constantly bombarded what with the highlight reel of other people. I kind of remind myself of it when I do my affirmations, uh, but it's basically where the mind focuses, energy flows. And there's various uh, derivations of this quote that you'll find popping up in, in different uh, texts, whether it be Indian uh, sort of Vedas or whether it be Chinese parables or stuff. But that's something that I try and ponder on quite a bit because we're very easily distracted and our mind is almost sucked into different areas on a day-to-day basis, whether it be outside, whether it be in front of screens, whether it be in front of phones and stuff. And if you're not being intentional about where you are thinking and, and establishing a habit about thinking and thinking about your thoughts, your energy will just be pulled into lots of different directions. And the other thing I think, um, which is really important, is in we live in sort of like this outrage culture mindset right now 
where it's very easily uh, easy to be triggered by something, whether it's politics, whether it's something to do with COVID, whether it's something to do with, you know, uh, nutrition wars, for example, really, really easy for me, especially. And if you're focusing on those negative aspects, that's where your energy flows. And actually, you have to be really, really intentional about your choices as to where you put your energy, because if it's going somewhere else, you only have a finite amount and you have to spread that across everything else that you want to focus on as well. I really enjoyed that quote and it's just so true. You can read Mm. something and it can kind of affect the next few hours or even days. Why do you think we're living in such an outrage culture? You know, it's interesting. I think social media as a mirror um, sort of reflects back whatever gets most engagement. And Francis Horn, I think, who is the, the Facebook whistleblower, sort of eloquently put this as whatever uh, heightens our emotions, that's what will trigger the algorithm to show more of because that's what drives engagement. And so I don't want to blame everything onto social media, but I think that's certainly something I see as a reason as to why we seem to be living in quite a shouty environment. I think we've always been quite tribal in our thinking, but with the added dimension of these character-limited social media platforms that don't have as much nuance as a podcast conversation, let's say, it's quite easy to be caught up in the narrative that can be quite extreme at times. So that's the way I see as to why we're living in this outrage culture. And I see it amongst my colleagues as well. You know, we've lost that sort of tolerance for someone else's opinion. And I also think we've lost the ability to hold two conflicting views. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I'm, for example, I don't want to get controversial here, but like I'm pro-vaccine, but I'm not pro-mandate. That doesn't mean that I'm an anti-vaxxer. However, to some people, those two are the same thing. And if you're not pro 100%, then ergo, you're the exact opposite. And I think that narrative being pushed across all these different platforms is what drives diversiveness and dr- drives that shelty Uh, outrage culture that we we see too often yeah really really well put and that's just one instance right where we're having this public conversation of you know shoutiness but you can quickly see how exhausting like social media becomes Mm. for all of us to your point how you started this conversation to be very intentional about where you put your focus because you could spend all day getting just so upset about everything (sighs) 100%. I I sort of ban myself from looking at the Twitter trending feed because it reads me so well, you know, and, uh, (laughs) you know, we're we're at the mercy of some very smart computers here that know which buttons to push. And we're quite easy to read as humans. We like to think that we can outsmart algorithms and, you know, we, we can control technology. But in reality, we are being controlled by a number of external forces. That's not to say that tech can't be used for good. I mean, obviously, you're, you've been in tech for a number of years and what you're doing is putting out some incredible stuff into the world that's going to be ultimately helping people. But we have to be aware of the nefarious side of things and we can essentially be riled up into a way of thinking that isn't healthy for the planet, society, and certainly not for ourselves either. So well put. Thank you for beginning on such a note that I think we can all relate to. Um, What's a life lesson you've been reminded of recently? I always come back to the idea that who you spend the most time with will dictate your feelings and ultimately your your goals and uh, what you aspire to to be so it's you know i mean the most basic version of this life lesson is choose your friends wisely 
but I, I think in the same way, I'm a big fan of being conscious about curating your digital environment. I think we also have to be intentional about curating your in real life environment. And sometimes that can be quite hard because what I'm not trying to suggest is that you should just cull anyone from your friendship group who doesn't add some sort of value to your life in terms of productivity or networking or anything like that. However, if you find that the net feeling that you have by spending time with certain people is a negative one, then you, you have a choice. And I don't think people allow themselves to have that choice. For example, a lot of people uh, stick with friendship groups that they have throughout childhood and school. And I'm reminded of this life lesson because I was recently in Australia, which is where I spent two years uh, doing a &E and working in ITU. And it's also where my partner uh, is from as well. And in Australia, making a big sweeping generalization, friendship groups are quite cliquey. And uh, they're, they're sort of set quite early on from school. And so, you know, the question is not where you went to university or where you, where you work. It's like, oh, which school did you go to? Like, they still have that sort of mentality in their, in their 20s. I just think like you can allow yourself to break from different friendship groups if they no longer serve you and you no longer serve them as well. And that's okay. It doesn't, you know, we don't have to have like a, a conversation about it and bring it to a big thing, but you can make subtle choices in your life and choosing your friendship groups, I think is a very, very important one. And so with that knowledge, I've been thinking about a lot more about who I actually spend my, most time with because time is precious as well. So true. And also, you know, making sure you've got time to recharge your energy and spend time by yourself. And and as you get older, I've definitely found as much as I want to spend more time with lots of different people, it's just practically impossible when you've got, you know, work, mm. family, just the day goes. And, and if you don't prioritize yeah. the people you really love, you can quickly have very thin friendships. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And what you said there, um, recharging, I think is really, really important as well, because I'm a classic people pleaser, right? Like I, I want to bend over backwards <laughs> yeah. with people, you know, so if someone like texts me and like, I haven't seen you for ages and you know, you're, you know, you're also busy. I like, I never want them to think that, oh, you know, Rupi suddenly got a social media account now and he does a few books and like, you know, he's just shining us. And, and that's why like sometimes I'll find myself saying yes to things and stretching myself and burning out myself just to put a smile on someone else's face whereas actually sometimes you need to really look inward and remind yourself of okay you have to look after number one because if you're not that's not going to serve anyone let alone yourself so it's something I've come to learn over the last few years and I think yeah maybe this is just something that we go through the the more mature we become the older we become we become like this anyway so yeah sometimes I I, I try and commit to myself and I'm like I'm becoming a lot more mature and stuff or maybe it's just coming with age maybe it was always going to happen yeah exactly <laughs> and we don't really have a choice anymore I guess it's like we just as well as finite time you kind of have slightly finer energy in some ways how do you understand the concept of soul well this, this is sort of like um related to what we were just talking about um what are you recharging when you choose intentionally to spend time uh, with yourself instead of stretching yourself to go and meet someone or uh, put a smile on someone else's face? That's what I see and that's what I consider to be my soul. The time that I spend reflecting, uh, writing my affirmations, being intentional about where I want to take myself, my, my business, my how I want to uh, write my life, what I want to look back on in, in a few decades, 
all these are sort of like intangible and tangible elements of what I feel like the soul. It's that sort of inner contentness I want to try and feed. It's funny, I went to a Rupert Spira uh, talk a couple of months ago. This idea of the soul being I or something that is basically a reflection of the ego is something that prevents us from really understanding what soul is, which is awareness. And so it's my awareness of like how my body feels or how my thoughts are or the awareness of like how I feel at this point in time. You know, that's sort of my uh, woolly version of what the soul means to me. It's a feeling rather than something that I can like write down. But there are certainly things that I can do to enhance that feeling of contentness. Awareness is soul. That's so beautiful. So much to reflect on post that. I could talk to you for an hour about the soul, but I'm going to now, (laughs) (laughs) I'm now going to swerve into talking about, I love all your books, but my favorite book, Eat to Beat Illness, just the way you've put it together is just so brilliant. And you just say it in such an unenforceful way. It's just education first, which I really love about your approach towards everything. I'll give you the information and then you choose. Do you do that intentionally using your word? Absolutely. Yeah, you've really hit the nail on the head there because all I can do is provide the information and it's up to everyone else to put whatever they feel is appropriate for them into action. I'm agnostic when it comes to diets. You know, if people want to choose paleo, if they want to choose veganism, Mediterranean diets, whatever, I'm completely fine with it. But all I have to do is is show them what the evidence states. And so I always whittled it down into principles, largely plants, lots of different types of colors, fiber as a focus, eating whole foods, eating in time, and giving them the tools to be able to do that. But you can, instead of me talking about like macronutrient composition and specific glycemic loads and calorie counting, etc., I prefer to give people principles and they can apply that to whatever cuisine and whatever way of eating that they prefer. And sometimes that involves a fasting practice. Sometimes that involves eating specific legumes and and lentils or culturally, whatever that might be for them. And I feel like the first book was me doing like a deep dive into everything and, and taking people on this foodies journey through food is medicine. Whereas E to be illness was me refining, okay, exactly how does food impact different areas of the body? Uh, how does it affect brain health? How does it affect your mood? How does it affect cardiovascular disease? In fact, the, the hardest chapter to write for me was the one on oncology, on cancer, because it's such an emotive subject. And unfortunately, because it's taboo, there's a, a vacuum of information that's been willingly filled by a lot of people that unfortunately have, have brought a lot of harm to people because they've overpromised about certain supplements and, and herbal medicines, et cetera, or they've demonized traditional medicine for whatever reason. But that was really me just being as blunt as possible and saying, this is what we know about all the different ways of eating. This is what we know about largely plants. This is how we can prevent as well as support uh, using all these different tools. And the final chapter, after zooming into all these different areas, was inviting the reader to zoom out and just say, okay, look at all these different areas. Look at the what I've written about the brain, about the skin, about eyes, and just look at all the similarities. It's all the same thing. And the reason why it's all the same is because your body essentially uses those nutrients and it has this innate ability to look after itself. 
Uh, and so what you're doing with food is giving it the smorgasbord of all the different nutrients that it needs, and it will use what it needs, and it won't use what it doesn't need, bearing in mind not to over-egg all the excesses that we know can be harmful. But the focus really was on what you can eat and why you want to eat more of certain foods rather than restriction, rather than one of like some sort of punitive practice that we have to do that most people associate with healthy eating or diet culture. So you you open the book quite powerfully by saying the healthcare system is under enormous stress treating lifestyle diseases. And so we need lifestyle solutions. And obviously this really relates to the fact that you are a general practitioner, you've been in the medical system, the conventional medical system for a long time. Can you expand on that? Like it had like an urgent tone, which I really appreciated. Yeah, I think the urgency is is warranted as well, actually. But even when I work in A&E, a lot of what I see coming in through the door is the result of a lifestyle-related condition, uh, whether it's metabolic disease, whether it's cardiovascular problems, whether it's even things like dementia. People don't really realize how much it's related to the way we live our lives. When people say lifestyle-related illnesses, we probably need to rebrand that in some way because it makes it sound like it's a choice. And, and I think, particularly over the last 10 years, we're, we're recognizing just how much disease is a result of your environment, your lack of privilege, your education level, a lot of different things that you don't have direct control over. Um, obesity is a big one, for example. Like A lot of people don't realize that obesity is soon to be if not already classified as a disease because there are multiple drivers other than excess calorie intake that a lot of people don't realize there's genetics there's uh, even infections as well there's a potential viral component so there, there are multiple different drivers that being said a lot of what i see in in A&E and general practice of course is related to lifestyle related illnesses the solution isn't to out drug our uh, patients. It's not going to be found in a number of different molecules that eloquently remove uh, lipoproteins from your circulation or, you know, impact certain insulin signaling pathways that will prevent obesity and stuff. It has to be down to the root cause. And the root cause has a lifestyle and nutrition component. We have to sort out our eating environment as well as giving people the right tools to make the right choices, which is why I do the books and all the rest of it. And then also creating and curating an environment where a healthy lifestyle is the default rather than something that you have to opt in at a premium. You know, most people think about exercise in the context of having to have a gym. But exercise in different areas around the world is just walking or having access to open spaces or, you know, different community groups where you can actually do things outside and activities and actually societies and communities that are coming together to to enhance those and actually be more enthusiastic about people uh, joining those. So there are so many different ways in which we can optimize people's lives before they get to the stage where they have to come into A&E or to GP where we have to use drugs as well. I'm glad that you, you got the impression that it was urgent because it is definitely urgent. And if you just look at the numbers, you know, cancer, 30 to 40% of those are lifestyle related. The most uh, expensive conditions, the most expensive uh, diseases that we treat are largely lifestyle related as well. Yet we spend 
something uh, of the magnitude of less than 3% of the total uh, NHS budget on uh, preventative medicine. And so that really needs to change because we are reacting to illness rather than being proactive about it. And this proactiveness, I think, is coming through uh, the ranks now when people are waking up to this idea. And this speaks to, I think, in chapter three, and you're talking about food in the heart, and you open it by saying, if you think you're too young to read this chapter and you don't think you've got anything wrong with your heart, just think again. Why did you include that chapter in the food in the heart? And what did you really want people to understand through it? Yeah, um, so I came to this because of a heart condition myself. So I, I used to suffer with atrial fibrillation, a uh, cardiac condition where my heartbeat except really fast, 200 beats per minute. And that was me as a 24-year-old. And I didn't have any pre-existing issues. I wasn't overweight. I didn't have a family history. I wasn't on medications. I wasn't a coffee drinker back then or anything. It was accumulation of a, a number of different stresses. So I just became a junior doctor this 2009. I was on an unhealthy diet. I uh, was stressed out of my mind. I wasn't sleeping properly. I definitely wasn't doing any meditative practices or anything to dampen my my uh, cortisol responses and stress responses. And so my threshold for being able to deal with those different stresses was a lot lower than my colleagues. And that's what culminated in me having a condition. Luckily, through a lot of conversations with my mum, who asked me to do a diet and lifestyle intervention before I did something like a more drastic uh, intervention, something called an ablation, which I was definitely going to have at the time. I was a newly qualified medic speaking to some of the best cardiologists in the world. And they were all saying, you know, you need to have this ablation. But with their blessing, they gave me six months, you know, t- try the whole diet and lifestyle thing. And then ultimately, over about a year and a half of making small but consistent changes, I reverted my own condition. That was sort of me understanding this is powerful and we need to pay more attention to this. And I need to do a bit more research because this doesn't sound like it should work. Uh, and when you do a bit of research, you can understand the pathways uh, by getting to the root cause of illness and about how resilient our bodies are. So when I wrote the heart chapter, it was really a, to remind people that your heart isn't just something that you think of when you're in your 40s and 50s, because that's when you have you typically have heart attacks. In reality, what's been happening is a number of cumulative stresses up to that point, And quite frighteningly, we have evidence of young teenagers with plaques in their in their arteries even today. And most people think about the the heart in terms of a plumbing issue when it comes to atherosclerosis, but it's actually an inflammation-based issue, i.e. it's systemic inflammation at a cellular level, which is what is leading to all these different insults that allows plaques to form in the walls of the arteries. And so if you were to do uh, investigations looking at all of our arteries, just take a thousand people who are in their mid-20s or 30s, it is more than likely that you will find over 50% of those people that will have like small evidence of heart issues that will get worse unless we really take it seriously today and actually, again, take that proactive approach rather than a reactive approach. And so the heart chapter was really trying to get people to understand that we live in an environment that is not heart friendly. We never live in an environment that isn't brain friendly. We live in an environment that isn't psychologically friendly. So all those different chapters were really trying to wake people up to the understanding that we need to take care of our, we have to be intentional about taking care of our bodies and our minds 
because we live in a in a relatively uh, sick environment. So the heart chapter, I, I, I wanted to put that right at the top of the book uh, and remind people who are, who are not in their 40s and 50s that would naturally warm to that, or perhaps if they have a family history, that it is something to think about um, going forward. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So going into your journey, what were you eating? And then what did you change your diet to, to be able to have this quite significant healing journey across six months? I was eating what most people would regard as a normal diet. Uh, so a cereal and juice in the morning. <laughs> it was a soggy sandwich in the afternoon uh, from something from the hostel canteen. It was uh, probably a pasta in the evening. You know, something like you wouldn't raise your eyebrows at that. Most people wouldn't raise their eyebrows at that. I was a 24-year-old. Like, you know, I wasn't overweight or anything. I didn't have anything... On the surface, there was nothing wrong, nothing that you could really tell. And so that as a standard junior doctor diet is pretty unanimous, you know, even today. So there wasn't that much that you could really pick out of my diet that you'd think, okay, that's, that's going to be the issue. The whole thing, if you break it down, is full of sugar. I probably maxed out my sugar content um, in the morning straight away. The bread that I was eating in the afternoon or whatever the canteen was serving was exceptionally refined and turned to sugar probably in my mouth it was lacking in fiber so my microbes weren't having anything to eat and we know that your microbes that live all over your body but largely in your large intestine are um, inseparable from health and they're related to balancing sugar balancing inflammation nourishing your gut cells creating metabolites uh, they have direct and indirect ways in which to impact your mood Looking after your, your gut microbes is essential. And actually, a lot of traditional medicine look at the gut as a central route to improving and supporting all illnesses and preventing disease as well. And obviously, my stress levels were through the roof because I wasn't sleeping. I was learning new things on the job. And uh, I was working in, in a hospital that wasn't very well staffed in the in the evening. So it was just like me and a registrar working in uh, the medical units covering all the units and it was a big big hospital so it was yeah it was it was a frightening experience at the time as well 
And so what I what I did with people always ask me like what was the magic cure sort of thing, but uh, I think you know anyone that's read the books will understand it's about the cumulative impact of your diet rather than the singular elements that you know will have this miraculous uh, uh, change in, in whatever. Um, and I was very fastidious about measuring when I was having AF episodes as well. So. I was having them two to three times a week, lasting anywhere between 12 and 36 hours. I was admitted a couple of times, but I didn't have a cardio version, which is where they put the paddles on, uh, or a chemical cardio version where they add uh, an antiarrhythmic drug through the vein. Uh, so I was lucky in that sense. But what I was doing was noting down exactly what I was doing at the time and what the potential triggers were, which we didn't really find any. So the first thing I, I did was I changed my cereals in the morning and I went for something that I assumed was healthier. Uh, I probably went through a couple of granolas before realizing actually this is full of sugar. <laughs> uh, so I, uh, I made my own. I started adding my own nuts and seeds to it. I heard something about zinc and vitamin E at some point. So I thought, okay, I'll add that. I got rid of the orange juice and just had plain water. I made sure I was hydrated throughout the whole day, something I wasn't doing very well as a junior doctor. I then started bringing in my Tupperware in the afternoons and I got labeled Tupperware boy while my consultant because <laughs> I would always bring my lunch in, in the Tupperware. Uh, and, and, and I already knew how to cook as well. Uh, so my mom taught me how to cook before I went to med school. So I basically applied my like love of cooking to healthier ingredients, things that look vibrant and green and, you know, using different textures and things like nuts and uh, things like whole grains as well. Something that I always loved. I always had like a, a taste for that kind of stuff. Um, but I, I just didn't, didn't invest the time into making myself. And the same thing, I would, I would be pretty fastidious about using leftovers and stuff to make for my lunch the next day. I started meditating again, something that my parents taught me how to do during GCSEs. I started uh, trying to tuck myself up in bed uh, early when I wasn't doing night shifts. Importantly, I never gave up being a doctor. A lot of people would have thought that I, I would have taken some time off, but actually I was so wedded to this idea, like my identity was intertwined with me being a, a junior doctor, a working doctor. I didn't want to give that up. And, and I think that sort of sense of purpose really did do something, you know, even if it was from a mindset point of view, psychologically, that, that definitely helped in some way. And yeah, my, my AF episodes went from like two to three times a week to, I remember looking at my, uh, my notes and it was like, okay, it hasn't been, I haven't had an episode for a month. And then that turned into three months and then that turned into six months. And I spoke to my cardiologist and they said, well, we'll just keep an eye on you, but it'll probably come back. And you know, it's been 10 years wow. so, and I still have my cardiology appointments and stuff. And you know, that was really the confidence boost that I had to look into a bit more and start having open, honest conversations with patients about how they can help themselves as well. I guess on the other extreme of this, especially with heart health, do you also find that, you know, I know you've mentioned this on social media as well, but this idea when people go too extreme and they're working out like far mm. longer than probably their body can even handle and then they're, they're really like minimal in their intake of food. I also look at the dramatic side of health and I think, is that healthy? Yeah, definitely. It's definitely something I see a lot and I hear about a lot. And I even have friends that have this sort of attitude to health. It's like, you know, the more you can push, the better the results are. And actually, everything comes back to this idea of uh, homeostasis or balance. Everything has to be that middle way, you know, that Buddhist concept of like the middle path. And 
I think it's very much the same with within medicine and the same within uh, nutritional medicine and lifestyle medicine as well. There is such a thing as uh, doing too much exercise. There is such a thing as having too many greens in your diet. If you look at any extreme, even water, there is such thing as having too much water. We do sometimes veer to the extremes of diet and everything. So an example of how uh, and this is something I try and I try and do on Instagram where I, I every now and then I'll I'll do a post where I say is it appropriate for you to be following me do you have health anxieties is you following me actually doing you more harm because I'm I'm very aware of the fact that all I do is talk about nutrition food healthy lifestyles for a lot of people that's really helpful for some people it's not for some people, they have an unhealthy relationship with healthy eating or healthy living, such that it culminates in eating disorders. Sometimes it can uh, culminate in over-exercising. So th- there is definitely that nuanced point to it as well. The other thing is the amount of information we have about everything these days, um, whether it be the benefits of meditation or the benefits of certain foods or the antithesis of that, the negative aspects of food, gluten, sugar. You can find anything in the supermarket and i can tell you something negative about it you know kale's got too many oxalates in it can put you at risk of kidney stones legumes they've got anti-nutrients in they'll they'll prevent the absorption of certain minerals like calcium uh, and you'll have to supplement meat oh well (laughs) meat yeah it's a carcinogen you know it's got tmao it's going to cause inflammation it's going to sit in your gut you're not going to you're not going to feed your microbes pesticides oh pesticides you know they have an antibacterial effect they'll wipe you you out you'll ruin your immune system you can get health anxieties about pretty much every ingredient and there is such thing called the nocebo effect everyone's heard of the placebo effect which is where if i give you a substance and ascribe a health benefit to it you have a physiological response as well as a psychological response that can manifest in a positive outcome So if I give you a sugar pill and I say this is the most incredible painkiller, your pain levels can actually uh, go down. And and we actually have to control for the placebo effect in randomized controlled studies. And that's sort of the the gold standard of, of how we do studies. But there is such thing as the nocebo effect, where if I say, oh, this muffin has got tons of refined gluten in and it's going to clog up your stomach and it's going to cause bloating, you bet there will be some people that will have that exact reaction, even if there's nothing like that in the product itself. And there are some sham studies that have have done that as well to demonstrate that effect. Less is known about the nocebo effect compared to the placebo effect. But the mindset in which we eat things is something very, very important. It's something that I take very seriously as well. The, the mindset in general, I don't think is as fully appreciated in nutrition uh, either. Uh, it's very hard to control for as well. If you think about the studies, you know, we're, we're used to drug one, drug two, test them, look at the results, bang, that's it. We don't really have the capacity to also layer on top of that, the psychological impact, how the researchers interacted with the participants, what they actually said, what was the vernacular, the words they used, all those different things. There's so much nuance to this whole thing. And then when you, when you look at the impact of, of how you say things about certain substances, it's tangible. It's it's significant. We have to be careful about that. And that's why I hasten to sort of focus on the positive aspects of food, because if even if it is placebo, as long as it's having a beneficial effect, that's a win for me. 
I just find it odd how we almost throw away this idea of placebo. It's kind of like, oh, God, what's just placebo? But placebo in research trials is found to have just the same effect as actual medication. So it, it shouldn't be yeah. something that's so dismissive. It's like an amazing impact. It just obviously goes to show the power of the mind. I wonder, how do you think we can integrate more psychology and psychological intervention into nutritional medicine? Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting topic because I think a lot more uh, GPs in particular are coming around to the idea or have had training in motivational interviewing and behavioral change techniques. Um, because going back to what we were talking about with my my books, especially the first two, what I'm doing is providing the information such that people can make their own choices and providing some inspiration with easy recipes and all the rest of it. But in reality the information alone is just not enough. You have to give people tangible ideas and tangible actions such that they can make those changes themselves. And part of that is motivating them through psychological techniques or giving them the enthusiasm and the means to take control of their own health rather than relying on just the information or just a very structured, regimented pathway which is why diets are so popular because people believe that's what they want and they need that sort of direction whereas in reality it really should be about giving people the principles and also giving them the encouragement such that they can propel themselves for the rest of their life rather than relying on you know means so you know me learning how to cook and applying my knowledge of cooking to my new acquired knowledge of healthy eating that was game-changing for me and that's led me to always crave greens on the side of my my plates whenever I'm out and stuff like that. So the, yeah, the psychological element I think is is really important. There are some people um, doing some really interesting work in this area. So Alicia Crum is a psychologist, and she's at Stanford University. Uh, I believe it's the Spark Lab as well that she's uh, involved in, and she did one of these most amazing groundbreaking studies quite a few years ago it got a lot of attention at the time and they do various different experiments in the same vein but they, they did something called the milkshake study where they had a number of different participants and they were given a milkshake labeled as indulgent full of cream uh, absolutely you know uh, delicious loads of sugar 600 calories they gave them all these the sort of ideas about what this milkshake was and they measured their hormone levels afterwards as well so what you would imagine is that your satiation levels would go down afterwards and they looked at uh, different hormones like ghrelin and i think they looked at leptin as well and then the next week they gave them a different uh, milkshake and this was like disgusting sort of you know diet type uh, milkshake with all the fat stripped out of it and it was like less than 200 calories and uh it was like a, a bland sort of uh described milkshake and they measured their ghrelin levels and lo and behold the satiation levels fit with what you would have with a low calorie shake the kicker was the milkshake was identical and so what they observed, and this you know, was pretty groundbreaking, is the psychological impact of just looking and understanding what that milkshake was had a tangible physiological effect such that their hormone, you don't have, we don't have control, voluntary control of our hormone levels. That is just something that we measure. We can't conjure up the stuff in our, in our minds. That psychological expectation of a indulgent milkshake versus a low calorie bland milkshake had an impact 
that was shown in the results that they measured in the serum. So to your point, we need to take this stuff seriously because it, it has that that impact. And, and I imagine we're going to see a lot more of this kind of stuff going forward when it comes to how we describe all food, which is why, you know, when I, when I describe my recipes now after reading that, I, I always focus on the indulgence aspect because that that's going to be hopefully satiating. <laughs> God, that's so interesting. And this brings me really nicely onto your brilliant app. And it's just so innovative because a lot of this information is in books. And if you're not a book reader or, you know, you're on holiday and you've mm. like, you know, you can't bring your books with you or there's so many times when you don't have access to a book in front of you and yet your app solves that problem. Why did you want to create this app? Because it's not like you needed to, you know, you're already pretty yeah. busy. You're writing another <laughs> book. You have this insanely successful podcast. You're on television the whole time. And then, Dr. Rupi thinks that he should also create a tech platform. I know. <laughs> oh, you're massive imposter syndrome as well that I've been <laughs> chatting to you about. Um, so, so I've always wanted to create my own app that made it easy for people to know what they should be eating to support different health goals. And the MVP, if you want to call it that, is a very simple uh, library of recipes. We did a lot of research with individual followers and we, we found out that most people struggle with a couple of things, being creative in the kitchen and also how to follow recipes. So they, they love these step-by-step -step images as well, rather than videos that actually prefer step-by-step -step images. I thought it was going to be videos, but it turns out the other way around. And what we've done is essentially gone through all the nutrition research around different health goals, skin health, inflammation, uh, mental health, brain health, and more as well. We're, we're working on a whole bunch of different other health goals that are going to be a lot more refined. And we looked at all the dietary patterns as well as ingredients that align with those different health goals. So that is a, an additional filter on top of your dietaries, on top of your allergens and intolerances, and then you get access to this huge library of recipes that align with those health goals such that you can eat well every single day. And that's what we've launched with. And, and you know, it's been, as you know, to, over two years of like hard slogging, becoming a designer, a product manager, <laughs> learning about all these different types of code, how you can't just create an Apple version and then just put it on Android, the expense involved, all the different researchers. We basically created this like simple but smart algorithm in the back end that no one sees at the moment, but we're trying to figure out ways in which to bring that to the forefront. So you can understand the depth of research that has gone into it and also serves as an educational thing as well. That's what we've launched with. But the idea is to make this even easier and create the app such that it's a support tool for life. So we want to introduce things like um, wearables so you can match what you should be eating if you happen to be a lot more athletic uh, or you're you know, starting a new exercise regime and you want to make sure that you're supporting yourself. Uh, or perhaps if you have a specific condition as well, we also want to have the ability to integrate a platform where you can book an appointment with a vetted nutrition professional. So you can have a personal one-on-one -on -one conversation with them and say, look, I've got these kind of needs. What should I be eating? And then they can help you meal plan using the platform that we have. And also other features like shopping list, integration with online supermarkets, all that kind of stuff, just to make it super easy for you to eat well every day. That's the main goal. So yeah, lo lots of ideas. We're, we literally launched just over three weeks ago. 
the response has been lovely and we're just working on how to make this uh, the go-to app for nutritional medicine. It's absolutely brilliant. And as I said, I'll put the link to that in the show notes because even like last week or whatever, I was, you know, and I'm a useless cook. I'm absolutely hopeless in the kitchen. Like <laughs> me cooking an egg as a success. <laughs> and so I'm so appreciative of your app because to your point about the pictures, me without a picture is like, I mean, I don't I don't know where to go. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for being on today's podcast. I've learned so much and I'm just so inspired about how food really can be the most powerful medicine that we could have. Thank you very much for this. This has been wonderful. Thank you for listening. It would be a huge support if you wouldn't mind rating, subscribing and sharing this podcast. I also would love to hear from you. So please find me at Poppy Jamie on Instagram, DM me and I would love to hear your thoughts on any of the topics that we discuss. Download Happy Not Perfect, my app that's designed to boost your mood and help you sleep and give you mindfulness in less than five minutes. It's packed full of science-backed tools and rituals to give your mind the care it needs. Sending lots of love and energy. See you next time. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.